We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to oh. Here's what we're going to see from Josh Allen. This, this is why we like him. I think his biggest asset is that he's completely fearless. And we've seen it in the leaping the linebackers or against Dallas picking up the ball and diving forward. But the problem is it just gets a little out of control sometimes. I mean, he really is like the Johnny Knoxville of quarterbacks. Like, he'll do anything, and that doesn't always help the team. It's You want to talk to Josh, and it's like, Dude, you don't always have to eat the ghost pepper. You don't have to do the cinnamon challenge. You don't have to run across the porta potties at the Preakness. Sometimes just sit around, <laughs> play Uno, check it down. Be cool, my man, because I think we have seen with him big talent, big set on him, but also big mistakes, big game-killing mistakes that, like, guys, if we're sitting here in May, do we really think that Buffalo has it in him to not only win a playoff game but to unseat one of the big dogs? Is Josh Allen going to beat the Chiefs? Is he going to beat Baltimore, one of them? Not unless he just learns to just dial it down a little bit because I look at him now and it's like there's a fine line between fearless and reckless. And he has to be on the right side of that line. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I'm your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that was Kyle Brandt, Good Morning Football on NFL Network, talking about how important it's going to be for Josh Allen to learn to lean on the guys around him and some of the expectations heading into 2020. So yesterday, I get a text from Reed. He had his fence installed at his house. Reed's got a dog. So I went there to get the key and put it inside of his house. Come back home. My neighbor outside in the driveway, she's doing jump rope. So <laughs> they've been here, oh, she's been, they've been here like a week and a half. And I say, how was last Tuesday for you guys. I felt like we were a little loud. Like, how did that, how was, how was it? And she said, you guys, we really couldn't hear you. Although one of you has a maniacal laugh, like the Joker. That has to be, that has to be Drew. That has to be Drew. 
I love the fact that your new neighbors are already on board with this operation going on beneath them. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, come on, Chris, how could you, how could you not love us? I mean, think about it. It's the same as the people who are listening to our podcast right now. They love us because they don't have to look at us. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least for them. I mean, I have to be the hottest neighbor they've ever had. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Folks, every single year we get together to wrap up our drafts, you know, our draft coverage. With, we don't just stop at analyzing the Bills class because it feels like, I feel like that's short-sighted. Instead, what I like to do, Chris, every year we get together with some, some of the great football minds that we know from the draft community and take a look around the conference and the division just to see how our drafts compared and also to see what our expectation levels should be now that 90-man rosters are so close to being completed and that expectations are starting to take shape. You, know, you heard Kyle Brandt talk about it in the intro. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Josh Allen. But this team has done a lot this offseason and put the finishing touches on that in this draft. So with that said, you got to take a look around and see how you stack up. It, it, guys, we have a full show for you tonight. Week 7, Chris, of quarantine. Quarantined for seven weeks. It doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I like... I'm not a go-out person. You know this. You used to go eat lunch and drink by yourself at Doc Sullivan's. Yeah. That's a good fucking time. <laughs> I've got nobody bothering me. I can have a wings or their burgers are pretty good. And then look at the bartender because she's kind of hot. And You'll never talk to her, though. I mean, I do talk to I mean, I have to tell her what I want to eat and drink. <laughs> but that's the extent of it. <laughs> I'm not going to go, what are you doing when you get off of work? Why not? I'll be waiting in the back alley when your shift ends. That cool with that haircut, you're bound to get arrested. <laughs> with that haircut, you will absolutely get locked up for that. Ah, uh, Chris, unlike you, I'm a doer. I, when I say that, that doesn't mean that everything I do means anything, it just means that I call it ADHD, call it what you want. I can't sit still. I mean, this last week, we're getting productive here, Chris. First of all, pat on my own back, I successfully picked a bike lock in under four minutes, Chris. It's only been a few weeks that I've been trying this whole lock picking thing, and I'm already getting better at it. This is the this is the best. You're just channeling your inner Puerto Rican. Oh my god! Pick pick locks and boo boo this man. You knock it off right now, sir. <laughs> we don't tolerate that around these parts. And then, Chris, I find things to fill up my schedule with. I mean. I helped Kyle Trimble of bangedupbills.com hang drywall in his house this morning. We drywalled a patch in his ceiling. Do you know how much fun that is? Insulation, dust everywhere, and... I mean, I don't know. Was his wife around? Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's around. In fact, she's if anybody's interested, she's been making Buffalo Bills and Buffalo Sabres quarantine masks. Anybody interested, DM us at Rockpile Report. Or she's making them and shipping them all over the world as far as France, Germany. So obviously, if you live in the lower 48, eh, she can take care of you. Yeah, or don't DM us and DM Kyle Trimble at Banged Up Bills. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to be a third, a third party in this. Just then, contact and, Kyle. And then, Chris, I came home and finished, put, almost finished together. The nursery is almost finished, Chris. I put together a recliner today. Moved it into the house, put it up in the nursery. Chris, it's crazy. I know we're four. We're four. I told you this before we started recording. We're four weeks away, 
People like you should have to take a test <laughs> in order to be a father. See, I'm fine. You can't just freely throw around your demon seeds like this. Listen, I feel fine. People talk, oh, are you nervous? You know, they keep asking me that. I'm not going to lie to you, Chris. This is probably the most calm I've felt in a while, which is weird. I'm nervous for your kid. For that <laughs> moment it realizes that you are its father. <laughs> uh, and then, Chris, I think one of the, the, the other revelations of this past week, really, is that my patience with other people on the road has finally reached a breaking point. Chris, I have road rage. You know that. You've been in the vehicle with me. Oh, I've had this. I've had this this week. Okay. With with a little bit of road rage. What What is it about empty streets? Fewer people are now out in traffic. So is it, Chris, it's one of two things. Have these people always been shitty drivers? And it's just now more apparent because there's fewer other good drivers to hide in? Like, they, they aren't masked by people who are doing a decent job piloting their vehicle. Or have people just lost their minds? I mean, Chris, I'm talking about, how about this? Not trying to cross multiple lanes in a single lane change. Eh, I'm going to cut across four lanes. Why? Well, I felt like it. Uh, turn signal usage in general. Chris, I judge people based on that. If I see you not use a turn signal, I just assume you're an asshole in every other facet of your life, too. See, I look at this kind of stuff like if any of you guys have seen any, literally any Bill Burr comedy special... There is always a section of his stand-up special where he talks about needing to cut the population in this world. <laughs> and he'll usually, he'll usually say, the, I've heard him say it on Conan before. He's like, well, he always says, well, if I was a dictator, those people would be eliminated. <laughs> for, for me, there's like two people I've seen. People at the ATM who use the drive-up ATM and then open their door <laughs> to use the ATM. If I was a dictator, those people would be eliminated. <laughs> I was going to Reed's. I was driving down the 219, saw a SUV, and I got closer, and the driver had the dog in its lap, dog head out the window. If I was a dictator, those people would be eliminated. <laughs> Chris, the people driving 5 to 10 miles an hour under the speed limit for no obvious reason. Not like, hey, the weather's bad. Or, hey, there's something in the road up ahead and maybe I'm... No, Chris. People doing 40 and 50 just because. Just because. Punish... Chris, public floggings aren't enough for me. I don't, I don't know what the punishment should be. I'm not willing to go to your... I'm not over here advocating the elimination of people, but I'm telling you, there should be... Uh, Chris, or people who park like jackasses. Now that everyone's quarantined, you have to be at home. Chris's neighborhood is chock full of people who cannot park. Chris, we're talking about the type of people who drive Mini Coopers and yet somehow manage to take up just as many spaces as my truck does. How? How does this happen? Well, I mean, if you look, I pointed it out before we started recording, but if you look out my kitchen window right now, there's a bunch of broken glass right outside of my driveway. And then there's a car parked on the street and it has a flat tire. From running over said glass. All I know is this, They folks, deserve it. My girlfriend... My girlfriend, Jesus Christ. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow, she's going to kill me when she listens to this. My wife and I went for a ride together in my truck this weekend. She gets in, and as we're sitting there and we're driving down the thruway, she's looking at my windshield. She's like, what are all these spots? 
And I was like, oh, you know, I hit the windshield wipers with some fluid and it doesn't go away and it doesn't go away. And she starts rubbing at it and it's, it's on the inside. You know what it is? It's spit. And she goes, how did the, why, why is there so much like stuff on the inside of the thing? And I have to confess to her, it's because I'm screaming sometimes like a lunatic in the cab of my vehicle, just about the people driving around me in traffic. Chris, the look she gave me was like, that checks out. <laughs> Well, I think that has more to do with the direction your teeth go in. <laughs> Either way, folks, it's been week seven of quarantine. We're all still alive and kicking. It's still moving. And we still got each other, right, Chris? <laughs> sure. Look, so as most of you know, Drew and I both use our Twitter account. I'd say 85% is shit from you, and then... I'll come in with like another 15% usage. You can always tell because Chris's grammar, punctuation, and hashtagging are awful. And I don't use emojis. And I generally put my name with the tweet. But, you know, but I see everything. I might, <laughs> I might not be the one that tweets the most, but I do every, I do see everything that you tweet and respond to. And I was doing that at lunch today because generally we're podcasting today. I will stop at consumers on the way home to get moose at. And then I see you running your goddamn mouth to, to Aaron Quinn about beer. So we're, oh, doing, no. we're doing a beer review. <laughs> no. So I said I went to consumers and friend. I bought a stout. Oh no! So well, first of all, you have to explain the can to our audience because the the way the can looks is the reason I bought the beer. Okay, so. First of all, I am in my conversation with Aaron, I was explaining that, first of all, I do not like grapefruit beer, so don't slander me with that. There were some insults being thrown my way over our grapefruit beer review from back in the day and our, and our frequent Seagram's usage on this podcast. And they brought up porters and stouts, and I said, I can't drink a stout. It's the one beer that four or five times a year, someone will leave one at my house, whether it's a Sunday football, you know, Sunday football, tailgate, whether it's just like a cookout. And I'll look at it in my fridge for about two weeks, and finally I'll say, okay, you know what? Maybe this is the stout that gets me on board with them. And it never happens. I hate all of them. Well, what's on the can is the reason I purchased so, that one. So Chris has just handed me Evil Twin Brewing. It's called the 90 Days Dry Aged Stout. And on it is a picture of a cow. Yeah, Picture of a cow segmented off the way you would segment off beef if you were to take it to market. Yes, and because you were in argument with Aaron Quinn, you know, we did have that uh, DM chat group called Meat Lovers United. So that is the sole reason I bought that can. Oh boy. All right. I just cracked it open. It already it already has the appearance of motor oil, Chris. This seems horrible. This seems like a bad idea. Well, I mean, you run your goddamn mouth to Queen about stouts. You know, is this punishment for me talking smack about your beer choices? No, it's you just were like, oh, I don't like stouts. And I go, well, you're going to have a stout tonight on the show. So I stopped in at Consumers on Niagara Falls Boulevard, picked up a 12-pack of Moosehead, and then I was great as nowadays that they just sell singular cans at Consumers so I don't have to buy a six-pack. And then there's a cow sectioned off okay. so on the can, so that's why I bought it. Okay. I took my first sip. There is an aftertaste here that I've... Uh, 
All right. Yeah, and it's it's not like I'm. Most of the beer reviews that we do are this. Okay, if I were to Citra, if and, I were to do this like a sommelier, I'd say mouthfeel. This feels like I imagine motor oil tastes. It has a very waxy kind of a. It, it leaves something with it. In your mouth, it feels heavy. It's not crisp. It's not like crisp. Beer is supposed to be refreshing. This feels like I'm drinking a pork chop. It's thick. All right, I want, let me get a glass because I want to. It's. Thick. I want to try it. It's thick. And it's. It's. There's a lot going on here. It's got a very dark flavor, which is the, this roasted malty taste that most stouts are supposed to have. Which again, there's nothing refreshing about that. Yeah, nothing. Oh yeah. All right, that's that's good. Nothing about that screams refreshing, Chris. This is. It doesn't smell that bad. It is thick. It does look it like it sits funny on the back end of your tongue, like Chris. Like earlier today, I was helping Kyle Trimble do drywall, and as we were getting to a patch in the ceiling, I'm trying to do it, and there's drywall dust falling into my mouth. And after you kind of swished it out with water, there's an aftertaste. This is what I'm reminded of as I'm drinking this beer. Drywall. What? what what's your assessment? Good lord. I mean, I don't have a beer palate. I'm, this, this is getting I can't, worse as I I'm drink gonna, it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what notes it has, but mm. it, it has notes of it has notes of old tire. <laughs> um, oh God! It. I don't mind it. It's it, bark. Maybe <laughs> there's a bark on this thing. I don't mind it. For me, it's it. It's like a a, a, a southern tier pumpkin in the sense that. I could probably only have one of these. I don't know how you could drink like three or four stouts. This is a little... It's not as bad as that stuff that Kyle Washington sent us that legit had the <laughs> consistency of motor oil. <laughs> Kyle Washington, one of our listeners and friends from Nevada, sent us a stout that I decided to drink the night of the draft last year. I opened it at 10 o'clock. It turns out it was 10 and a half point, what, 10 and a half ABV? Yeah. It was. Chris, I drank that so quickly because I'm like, well, these stouts, it's a milkshake something, and it went down smooth, and then I got the spins. Yeah, that was a lot of friggin' alcohol. See, I can't drink this. Oh, God. These stouts are just terrible. They're terrible. And I know that there's some of you out there snickering going, oh, dude, Drew can't drink a stout. It makes him, like, it makes me less of a man. I'll tell you what. I would drink a six-pack of Seagram's before I drank another one of these. See, I don't think it's that bad. I Then if, you drink it. Good well, lord. I bought it for you. You're the fucking beer connoisseur. <laughs> oh, my God. 90 days dry-aged stout, folks. It definitely sounds, it's definitely dry. It does, in fact, taste old. Um, if you if you're looking for the taste of rubber, you know, like what might accompany a tire, it's all there for you. It's all there in this this atrocious beer, Evil Twin Brewing, ninety days dry aged stout. Good lord, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Excuse me. Mm. Oh, I clean that garbage off my palate, and we finally switch gears here. Let's get on to something more pleasant than that. Good Lord. The purpose of tonight's show, our AFC and AFC East draft roundup. Chris, level with me here. It is hard to tell what the expectation should be for your team. I mean, we just spent last week with Nate Geary talking about our draft and how our draft went and 
how we both felt about it, what we felt the class said about the expectations for the upcoming season, what it said about the existing talent on our roster. But it's hard to project where you stack up if you don't know how everybody else did, right? Exactly. If you want to host a playoff game, you got to win your division. Okay, so with that said, it, it's worth taking a look around both the conference and the division just to see how everyone else fared, how you've, whether or not you've made up ground on that front. Yeah, I mean, we're coming off a 10-6 and wildcard season, so if you're watching Good Morning Football lately, just like you heard in the show open, you know, people are expecting us to take that next step. Well, a lot of that not only hinges on what we've done, but also what our competition's done. And so with that said, we bring back one of our favorite draft analysts. Mark Schofield. But perhaps that's the 10-personnel package that they have in mind. Play-action concept, he had a vertical rut, but he had a check down available that he immediately comes to the juke. Myers is there, perfect throw and catch. Toto Connoisseur and host of the Sco Show on Pat's Pulpit. Mr. Schofield, this is your first time recapping the AFC playoffs with us. How are you doing tonight? AFC playoffs? Well, AFC Jesus, AFC draft, whiskey. Put down the whiskey. Nope. I'm topping myself off. I'm topping myself off as we speak, sir. No, we're we're recapping the draft, Fred, which is all us Patriots fans have to think about right now. Oh, Jesus. I'll tell you this. Folks, again, for those of you new listeners old, we have Mark Schofield here, host of the Sco Show. He's worked for USA Today. He's done work for Inside the Pylon and their drafts. Chris, Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio. He actually recently has done some work with him. What else do you have going on out there in terms of draft content? I feel like you're working for everybody everywhere. It certainly feels that way, my friends. Um, USA Today Touchdown Wires, where I'm doing a ton of stuff right now. Uh, Myself and Doug Farrar uh, doing a ton of draft recap stuff over there. We'll obviously be talking a lot this week about the schedule release because that's the next big event on the football calendar. Um, like you guys said, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, Pat's Pulpit, Bleeding Grain Nation, where I co-host the newly renamed QB Factory with Michael Kist. It used to be the QB Sco Show, but then they drafted Jalen Hurts, and Howie Roseman said the Eagles are a QB Factory, so we had to rename the show. His, um, his gif yeah. about the QB Factory might have been one of the funniest things I've seen on oh, Twitter Oh, the voiceover thing? <laughs> yes, that was tremendous. And, I mean, that's what – look, Kist is incredibly talented. But his voiceover stuff, his voice work is top notch. He's got like he's got the old wrestler. Ask him sometime about his pro wrestling days. But he's got the promo ability. Like he cut that audio. I was watching it on the couch with my kids and dropped the first f bomb, saying, "You know, people are gonna get effing murdered." And I was just like, "Oh, boy, let's hit mute, Simone. We don't need to be watching this funny little cartoon from Daddy's friend right now." Um, but yeah, no, Kist is fantastic. He makes my life a lot easier. So yeah, but look, best way to find me though is on Twitter um, at Mark Schofield. You would get lots of, like you said at the intro, total references. Oh my God! It's not only Toto references, but also he'll re- automatically retweet every Scrubs Scrubs gift. Scrubs and Peaky Blinders. All right, and and one of the things that I love about Mark is that he's one of only two Patriots fans that we will allow to grace these airwaves. You're in rarefied air, sir. 
It is rare Friday. I have something of a, a, a friendly following in Buffalo, and that obviously stems from the Josh Allen draft. Nate Geary, who we were just talking about uh, before the pod, he and I hosted a quick little short-lived podcast called Intentional Scouted, which thankfully we haven't had to revisit because it seems the Bills have their quarterback. But it's nice to be enjoyed and loved, or at least, as you said, tolerated up in Buffalo. <laughs> Tolerate. Although I will say there were a couple times when I was on Saturdays uh, on WGR um, where you get the occasional Twitter user that's just like, why are you having this guy on? He's absolutely awful. He's got a brutal accent. He likes the (laughs) Patriots too much. It's like, all right, guilty as charged. My accent is nauseated. I get it. And I am a disgusted, filthy Patriots fan. I understand the hatred. So, yeah, it's all in good fun. I love that you embrace it, sir. I'm not going to hide who I am at this point. So we talk about tonight's, the theme of tonight's show is trying to see, you know, obviously we spent last week with Nate talking about the Bills draft and the themes of it and what it means for the 2020 roster and kind of what our GM and personnel people must, must think about the talent that we already have on hand. But it's hard to really get an idea of where you stack up if you don't look around and see what everybody else has done. See who might have, I don't want to say leapfrogged you, but who might have also improved. Who might have declined and where how the landscape kind of lays post-draft. So with that, just coming out of the draft when you're talking about the AFC conference as a whole, there's winners and losers everywhere. One of the winners, I think, was the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, would you agree with me in that? Yeah, although it's dreams to have created something of two different camps. I think most people you guys, myself, look at the Ravens draft and say, look, this is how the Baltimore Ravens stay good, right? Like Patrick Queen, a great linebacker, falls to them at 23. Then they draft Malik Harrison later in the draft, who I think is an ideal fit for them to pair with Patrick Queen. I think that's like almost a a perfect one-two combination at linebacker. Then J.K. Dobbins, look, they're a, a team that's built around the running game. And so you draft J.K. Dobbins, who's sort of an ideal north-south guy, fits perfectly with what they do. So much of their offense is built around getting the run game going. So most people, you know, look at that and think this is how the Ravens stay good. They have a great draft. They address some needs. You know, these are great picks. But other people, this was a discussion that you might have seen play out today, Tuesday, on Twitter, which is the sort of analytical, numerical, math-based side of the football analysis world that looks at it and says – you spent your first three picks on a running back and two linebackers. Those are positions you could address later in the draft. They talk about positional value, and you could have done different things. You could have drafted wide receiver. And so it's interestingly, guys, set up two different camps. For me, I'm with you. I think it was sort of a great draft for them. I think it's just another example of how the Ravens are going to stay good year after year, but others are looking at it and saying, by the numbers, by positional value, they could have done things differently and had a better draft. Well, and you can think that. And I, 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 I understand where those people come from. But at the same time, I mean, when you look at what Patrick Queen, where he was projected to go, if we're just talking about draft value, the right. fact that he fell to them in the first round, I mean, this is, so one of our favorite guests, at least mine personally, because he gives you a lot of, Chris, he gives you a lot of information without a lot of fluff. Ken McCusick, the guy's all business. He does uh, the Film Study yes. Ravens podcast. I love Ken. This is what he had to say about the selection and even gave a little insight as to what he liked about it in his post-draft podcast. 
expectations need to be set properly for Patrick Queen as a rookie. I think he'll contribute. I think he'll play a lot of snaps. I don't think we're going to see a great season in his very first year. I, I think he will find ways to contribute within the system, and, and, and he'll grow um, over the next several years. But it's definitely a seed being planted. He needs to get better as a shedder. Uh, you know, at his size, he needs to make sure he doesn't get lost in NFL traffic, uh, try and avoid the wash. But there's no doubt in my mind he's going to be a great pursuit player. He probably will be a good gap gambler, although that's something we need to see. I'm a little concerned still about NFL play action. I'll respond to that. Um, but, you know, it's again, these are things that grew over time. Mosley and Lewis weren't there right right off the fact. I mean, Ray Lewis was a two-down linebacker as a rookie. He didn't have the green dot, and he wasn't on the field, despite the Ravens' defense being very bad in 1996 on third down. So that's Ken McCusick from his post-draft podcast talking about that. If you take it as just, hey, here's a, a linebacker who's immensely talented physically. He doesn't have a lot of tape because he didn't get that many snaps. Right. You can tell me everything you want to say about numbers, but that's a great pick from a value perspective if he develops in the same vein as a guy like a Mosley or a Patrick Unwasser or I, I don't even want to say Ray Lewis in the same name as a rookie because, let's face it, he's rarefied there. He right. is... No, Drew, I, I think you're exactly right. And first off, I absolutely love Ken. Um, he's such a great guy. Um, but in the sense that if you look at where they made the queen pick at 28 contrasted with the Los Angeles Chargers traded back into the first round with the New England Patriots, giving up 37 and 71 to then draft Kenneth Murray, who I think is more of a project at the linebacker position than Patrick Queen. You know, I think it's it's a fantastic draft in that sense as well. These picks don't happen in a vacuum. You know, Baltimore just, as they do so often, they just sit there, they let the board come to them, they work their board and they draft. And let's remember, this is a team that went 14-2. and two. You know, it's not like they had a ton of needs going in. And the idea with respect to the J.K. Dobbins pick, I think there's a better argument to be made. Don't pay running backs big premium contracts. You can draft them first round, second round, wherever, they're going to be cheap as rookies. Don't then pay them a big money deal. Maybe that's the position where you sort of just recycle through guys on rookie contracts. I think that's a smarter way to go. Oh, it absolutely is. Dobbins was the pick that I was furious. People on Twitter, let, let me tell you, I've never been ratioed harder than when I tweeted that drafting Epinesa when Mims and Dobbins were still on the board, I compared it to ordering a bologna sandwich at a, a, sandwich at a steakhouse. And I've never been ratioed harder, but I liked getting it off my chest because that's how I felt. This is what Ken had to say about Dobbins. Dobbins at at uh, at five nine two oh nine, you know, has the potential to take Ingram's spot after this year or after next year. Either one, uh, he certainly is a a reasonable choice as the third down back. Has a lot of build similarities to Ingram in terms of his compact. Uh, size going to have to learn how to be a pass blocker in the NFL, but he has been a pretty good receiver in college. I, I you know, I hear people talk about a couple individual drops, but his percentage of um, balls caught is very high in his uh, in his time at Ohio State. So I'm I'm excited about that. The things to love him as a runner are vision, and I think it, when he takes that to the next level, the Ravens do such a good job of blocking downfield. That vision is really going to pay off, and, and it really comes in two forms. One is see the field, but also is understand how those blocks are are being thrown and are going to be thrown in front of him. And that's that's something that, that 
you know, the Ravens will provide him with more visual clues on that because they're so good at blocking in level two and level three. I mean, I've, I've seen comparisons to him, Mark, as Ray Rice-esque. Dobbins was Matt Waldman's number one running back in this class, and he goes to the team that doesn't need any help running the football. I mean, right. you can, you listeners out there, you can hear Ken's entire 2020 synopsis of the Ravens class. That's what a boner I have for this. We'll link it in the show's description, and I love Ken's work. But ultimately, this team found good to great value in almost every single round. To me, I feel like. I mean, time is going to tell whether the wide receiver and offensive lineman they took later in the draft pan out. But how do you not call this draft a win for the Ravens? No, I, I think it was. And you could even go to the seventh round with Geno Stone, the safety they drafted from Iowa. And a lot of people thought he might have been a day two guy. Like They got him in the seventh round. I think the two wide receivers, DeVerney and James Prochet, they fit sort of that you know slot receiver type prototype that they're looking to sort of fill if they want to get into more of an 11 personnel look with a slot receiver you know Brennison the Michigan guard you know you don't become a four-year starter at Michigan if you don't have some talent and he certainly checks that box and so look I think the Ravens had a great draft and you know you can pick and quibble with positional value and things like that but even with the running back Ingram's near the end of his career probably running backs don't last a lot of time now you've got a guy that can step in, shoulder some of the load this year, and maybe be the featured guy next year, and you wear him down as you do with running backs, and you move on to the next guy. Like If they do it that way, I think this sort of numbers analytics Twitter will be like, okay, well, they did it the right way. They maybe drafted him a little bit earlier than we would have, but they didn't pay him a second contract. They didn't pay him a huge deal, and they moved on. Like That's how you use running backs. That's how you do it. And honestly, yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. When Ozzie Newsome retired – as the GM of the Ravens, I was really hoping that this was going to mark the fall off for the Ravens organization in terms, at least allowing the Bills to make up ground between the two from a talent perspective. But if this draft is any indication, Eric DaCosta is just as savvy as his predecessor. Which certainly seems that way. Sucks for everybody yep. else in the AFC. Yep. Now, who's one of your winners? Like, if you had one out there that you looked at and said, here's a team or a individual who just walked away from this looking great you know I, I i like what kansas city did and again that's another one where people are like you don't draft a running back in the first round but again you're talking about a team that just won a super bowl and last i checked checking the producers yeah they still have patrick mahomes like they're pretty loaded okay but now you drafted the first round clyde edwards alari the running back from lsu who's an absolute ideal fit for what they do because they're obviously still going to be a pass-heavy team. He's coming from an LFU offense where he was featured as a receiver for the most part. I think he's almost a perfect fit for what they do schematically. And then you look at the rest of the picks. They obviously had a need at the linebacker spot. What do they do there? Willie Gay at the end of the second round who, yeah, he had some red flags in college, but runs what, a 4-4 at the 40, at the combine? Like explosive sideline-to-sideline type linebackers. They had a need there. They addressed it. Lucas Nang, the offensive tackle from TCU, probably a bit raw, but you're getting him at 96 overall. Like They had some needs. They addressed them. Another team that I think had just a very good draft, but they're also got a great starting place to begin from. If I could – and here's what I love about you. I can send you a condensed version of the topics I want to talk about, And it's like I don't even have to prep you for this because on my losers list was AFC West defensive coordinators. And here's why. 
everybody working on that side of the ball in the AFC West who probably looked at their rosters pre-draft and said, eh, I think in free agency we've done enough to close the gap this offseason. You know, they just got done watching KC win a Super Bowl, Chris. They have to feel a little frustrated right now. The Chiefs offense, the, we just watched bludgeon the Houston Texans to death, like Negan in The Walking Dead in less than a single quarter of football, was already returning its most impactful players. Mahomes, Hill, Kelsey, Hardman, uh, Williams, Watkins, and that entire offensive line. Then they go out and they land this phenomenal talent at running back in Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who in an Andy Reid offense could be Brian Westbrook-esque when you pair him with all the other threats. I mean, Chris, here is Brett Coleman reacting in real time to the pick on his draft night broadcast. No, dude. Is that real? I don't know. I'm looking. Yeah, I'm pumped, man. CEH confirmed. There it is. They did it. They did it. Yeah, you and I talked about this. They just got one of the best football players in the draft. Oh, my God. It's See, perfect, all you, though. all you guys that root for NFC teams, you don't understand. You don't understand what no. we're going to have to deal with. This is... Dude, you've been dealing with the Patriots forever. Yeah. I hope this season gets canceled now. Fuck it. Brett Coleman and EJ Snyder. <laughs> draft night. He's clearly not a fan. Of the idea of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire being a Kansas City Chief. Mark, obviously you're not hoping football gets canceled, but you have to admit it gives Kansas City a huge boost for a team that doesn't need it. Absolutely. And you mentioned Drew Bryant Westbrook. Well, they told Andy Reid, look, you're going to watch this LSU running back. You're going to like him. You're going to think he's going to be your next Brian Westbrook. Reid watches him, goes back to, you know, Brett Veach and everybody else in the front office says he's better than Westbrook. I think he's going to be better than, than Brian Westbrook. That's a scary thought to think that Andrew Reid now has a guy that's going to be in his offense who might be better than Brian Westbrook, paired with Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Sammy Watkins, Tyreek Hill. Like it's just a matchup nightmare for, like you said, every single forget AFC West defensive coordinator, although they're going to have to face them twice a year. Every <laughs> single team that has the Chiefs on the schedule next year, like. Good luck it, matching up with them. It's it's literally like taking a shark and giving it the ability to walk around on land, like that, yeah. like like that old Saturday Night Live sketch, yeah. <laughs> the land shark. It's not fair. It's, it's not. not fair. <sighs> Another one of my losers, and this is one I'm curious to pick your brain about: Yannick Ngakwe and Leonard Fournette. These were two players who it's on a team, but what it is is here's two players who pre-draft decided, hey. In the run-up to this draft, we're going to try to force our way off of a dysfunctional Jaguars team. And yet, as the draft came and went, I think the team, they, neither one of them were dealt. And now you hear word from the team, hey, we're, we're comfortable moving forward with Leonard Fournette. Never mind whether or not the player actually want, wants to play for you. Same thing with Yannick Ngakwe. They're just like, well, what, if we don't get good value, you're going to be here. It very much seems like Ngakwe is not going to sign that tender. So both of these players are kind of left in the lurch. What do you think about that? What do you think about Jacksonville and the way this whole situation has played out? Look, interestingly enough, I think Jacksonville both had a good draft. And now 
they can do whatever they want. If they either don't want to sign the tender in Yannick Nagakwe's case, or if Fournette's going to still be on this team, but not be a future part of the team, not be a future part of the offense. I think Jacksonville seems like they're ready to move on. Look, Chase on at 20, Henderson at nine. Like those were pretty good picks in the first round. I love the Chenault pick. I loved him getting him at 42. And already they're saying they're going to use him all over the field. They're not going to try to make him just a wide receiver. They're going to use him as a tight end at times, as a wildcat quarterback at times, as a slot receiver at times. I love that. They got the Division Three offensive tackle, Ben Bartz from St. John's. I think that was a nice pick to get him in the fourth round. Quartermain, the Miami linebacker, is a good player. I think it was a very good draft for Jacksonville. And I think more than anything else, they didn't sort of force a panic move into a quarterback. Like, I would have been very disappointed if after all of this, they packaged 9-20 and 20 and they go up and they draft a quarterback and they sort of set themselves behind the ball again if they miss on that guy. They've got a guy they think they believe in, in Gardner Minshew. They're going to try to roll him out there next year. And now, look, Yannick, you don't want to play? Fine. We just drafted an edge. So, all right, don't sign the tender. Have fun sitting out next year, this season. And, you know, maybe you'll find a biter on free agency, but it doesn't matter to us. So, yeah, I, I, I think they've handled it pretty well. I just feel bad for those two players who just seem kind of marooned. Like, they're yeah. just stuck on an island. They're super talented players. Well, I mean, especially when you consider that they saw everybody else get off the island, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, they're like, like, well, wait you know, a minute. Jack from Lost, who's what, like, what was it? stuck on the island. Leonard Fournette tweeted out the famous scene from the end of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where yeah. he's just standing around in the living room looking around and there's no furniture in the house anymore. And everyone's yeah. gone. <laughs> he tweeted everybody's it out. Gone. He's everybody like, else is on to newer and better things, but they're stuck in Jacksonville, so. Exactly. And then, before we move on, because I'm the host of this show, sometimes I even break my own rules, Chris. I'm going outside the AFC here because I think the biggest loser of the draft, and Mark, being the quarterback guy that you are, having the background scouting him and the information you have on him, maybe you played a little bit of it in your day, I think the biggest loser of this entire draft was Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I was on a live show with Sigmund Bloom and Matt Waldman during the first round, and when that love pick came in, you know, before the next team made their selection, we already had Rodgers on his way to New England. Like, it <laughs> went 0-60 to 60 in the blink of an eye. And when you talk about New England, I mean, look at this. We've watched the Patriots for the better part of the last decade generate ways to take pressure off Tom Brady. Every single effort that the organization made was to give Brady the tools to succeed. Didn't matter whether it was drafting new offensive linemen. It didn't matter whether, whether it was ensuring that the, there was enough backfield talent. Investing in veteran wide receivers that would fit, fit the system. They did anything and everything they could to help Brady and their offense be the very best that it could be. Here, we're looking at almost the antithesis of that. Here's an organization that continues to just shovel crap at its quarterback and says, hey, come on now, get us wins. Right. I mean, what's interesting, and even putting aside the fact that they may have just drafted his replacement, it seems that their plan to help Aaron Rodgers is to run the ball out of heavy personnel looks. Because they drafted A.J. Dillon in the second round who's a downhill between the tackles thumper of a running back when they still have Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. And then the third round, they draft Josh DeGuaro as tight end from Cincinnati, who's probably more of a Kyle Juszczyk type. That's who I compared him to a touchdown wire. 
that's what Matt LaFleur came out and said he's going to be used like. He's their Kyle Juszczyk, basically a fullback slash tight end. They want to run the ball. They want to take the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands over the next couple of years and then kick him out the door and bring in this kid that just threw 17 picks last year playing in the Mountain West Conference. Like, if that's not a big kick to the onions, like, I don't know what is. Like, the, the, and, worst, the worst thing is seeing the graphic of touchdowns by quarterbacks thrown to first-round draft picks. Right. He's got one. Aaron Rodgers has one, and it was to Mercedes Lewis, who's not even a wide receiver. He's a tight yeah. end. And he wasn't drafted in the first round by. And Matt. yet, this is the hand that this team deals this yep. future Hall of Fame quarterback. And they traded up in the first round to do this. It's not like, look, they sat there, you know, 30, and he just fell into their lap, and they're like, all right, fine. The value's too good to pass on. They traded up to do this. When there were other receivers on the board that they could have drafted that would help them next year, these three picks, the first three picks, helped them minimally in 2020. (laughs) And I've wondered, and Michael K sort of put this into my brain when we did a show over the draft weekend and I started digging into it, it might even make a bit of sense. You almost wonder if that front office looked at what they did last year, 13-3, and first round by, thought, we really just overachieved. Like, everybody's saying we were, like, one win from a Super Bowl, but we weren't that good. You look at their 13 wins, just three of them came against the playoff team last year. They had two wins against Minnesota, and they beat Kansas City on the road when Mahomes was hurt. The rest of their 10 wins, they came against teams that missed the playoffs. They lost a home game to the Eagles on a Thursday night. They lost to the Chargers. They got blown up by the Niners coming off of their bye week. And then in the playoffs, what happens? Yeah, they have the first round by. Then they get Seattle at home coming off a trip out east to play the Eagles. So they were like on a short week, no rest. And then they go to San Francisco and get blown out again. So they're probably looking at this and saying, yeah, we were 13-3, and three, but we were paper tigers. We weren't really that good. And so drafting just another receiver to make this sort of the Aaron Rodgers show that everybody thinks we'll do, maybe that's not going to be the key. The key is going to take the ball out of his hand. The key is to prepare for the next – couple of years after Rodgers. So maybe <laughs> they that's what they're thinking. They can't get this right for a third time in a row. I mean, it's not often that you get to go from Brett Favre to Aaron no. Rodgers. There's no way they could do it again. And look, okay, it's it's an eat the tweet moment, okay? If Jordan Love becomes sort of the next, like, in the trio of quarterbacks, like Rodgers, Favre, Jordan Love in the same sentence – I will literally like have to eat the tweet that you guys send out when this article, when this podcast drops, because I don't see that happening. I don't think Jordan Love is that good of a quarterback. With time, he might be a serviceable starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't think he's getting to that kind of tier. No, absolutely not. Nor should he. I mean, you're talking about a back-to-back gold jacket quarterbacks. Right. Ultimately, Aaron Rodgers, the cheese truly stands alone in Green Bay <laughs> after this draft. That's that's how things pan out. So let's let's dig into the AFC East because I feel like that's what all of our listeners came here to talk about. I got to start with the New York Jets. My favorite pick of theirs was number 59, Denzel Mims. Chris, it may or may not have been the guy that I wanted. Out of Epinesa, Dobbins, Mims, it went Dobbins, Mims, Epinesa. And that's why you saw the drunken freak out you did on our on our live stream. Their most confusing pick to me was pick number 191, punter Brandon Mann from Texas A&M. Now, Mark, 
What about you? Did you have a favorite pick? You know, I, I think the Mims selection to get him where they did was just such great value. It's hard to say that look, there was a better pick than that. I think Makai Becton at 11 was a good pick for them, you know, going offensive tackle, getting the biggest guy at the combine. Like, I think that was a good pick. Ashton Davis was also a good pick. Like, especially if you might be moving one of your safeties. Like, I, I know there was some rumbling that they might move him to cornerback. If you might be moving Marcus May, like – Ashton Davis is a center fielder, free safety type. You can, you know, keep Jamal Adams down near the box. I think those were good picks. James Morgan, the quarterback at 125, was a bit of a head scratcher for me, mostly because I wasn't a fan of his. You know, I well, thought he was like ridiculously high well, variance. Well, let's talk about this because here's the thing. First of all, you took a quarterback in James Morgan. From FIU, a player highly scouted by the Bills. I saw a lot of Bills angst on Twitter that you took a mid-round quarterback. What are your thoughts on his prospects coming to the NFL and how much of his, that pick do you think was influenced by just the absolute disaster that the Jets passing game turned into when Sam Darnold wasn't in the fold? No, I mean, look, they had to upgrade their backup quarterback position. I think, you know, you looked at when Sammy was out with Mono, Luke Falk and the rest of the cast of the Island of Misfit Toys just obviously were just it was just a debacle. But I don't know if James Morgan, A, is that good of a prospect, and B, is kind of a fit for what they do offensively. We know what Adam Gase is. Like, a lot of it is a horizontal-based passing game. I'm very confused by the fall of Jake Fromm to where he was drafted. I think Fromm would have been a better fit for Adam Gase's offense. James Morgan, look, I, I forget. It was his game against Old Dominion where, like, the first four plays, it was like, this is great. This is a disaster. I don't think he can play in the league. Oh, this play is actually good. My God, what is he doing on this one? Like, this is not going to work in the National Football League. Like, he's that high variance just in the first four plays of a game. Like, that's who he is. He's an absolute roller coaster. I, I'm very confused by that pick by James of James Morgan. So when I look at the Jets draft class, I, me personally, I'd love to hate on it because a, Chris, they're from New Jersey and everything from New Jersey sucks, including uh, bon, Bruce Jovi. Spring, bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, acid wash jeans, the whole nine. But at the same time, I don't know. It seems like a, mix, a mixed bag in terms of execution. Yeah, I mean, there were some picks that I think were really good. I mean, you can even go later to draft. Bryce Hall was a corner that people thought might get into the first well, here's, round. Well, here's my question for you about Bryce Hall. Fifth round, labeled one of the steals of the draft. For any AFC's team. Yeah. Did he fall? Be Why did he fall? Was it just the injury history? It was just the injury. I wow. mean, everything else, film was clean. Like He was touted as a, as a day two prospect. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there were a number of players. Hall was certainly one of them. That because of injuries and the fact that we're all trapped in our homes, they couldn't get medical rechecks done on guys. They couldn't have that top 30 type visit where you have your doctors get another look at him. I think really Hall is one of those guys that fell as a result of that. I, I think he was a tremendous pick for them at that point in the draft. Uh, how do you view Bryce Hall as far as the depth chart? Because we did have Nate Geary here last week putting a Seagrams that Bryce Hall will be CB1 or 2 come I, week 1. I mean, I think he's probably CB2 to start. I mean, that's how good it is. When you look at the fact that this is a Jets team that has, you know, question marks on the defensive side of the ball, particularly in the secondary, you know, yeah, they've got, I mean, Pierre Desir, really? 
Bryce, really? <laughs> yeah. Bullett, really? Like Bryce, I mean, Bryce Hall is probably your, your number two corner at the start of training camp. And if we get like an extended training camp where you actually get four preseason games and all that good stuff, he's probably coming out of training camp CB1. Yeah, I'd agree with Nate. One of the reasons that I so badly want to pan what the Jets have done, and I want to pick your brain about this theory of mine. Just, I need you to follow me on a little bit of a walk. Walk. We came into this offseason, their needs were pretty clear. I mean, there was a stark hierarchy of what they needed to do to make this team successful. They had a top seven, a top ten defense, and yet their team was just abominable when it came to tight games. When it they had a string of thirty point wins and then almost lost to the Bills backups with all of the starters on the bench. They needed offensive line, they needed wide receiver help, and they needed cornerbacks. Those were the three facets of their team that struggled most in 2019 and were most directly responsible for a lot of their failings. They swing early on an offensive tackle and then go right back to ignoring offensive line depth until pick 129 at the end of the fourth round. Now we're talking about Makai Becton. He's a big guy, big physical guy, but he's a project. He's got one of the highest ceilings. He's the Josh Allen of tackle prospects. He does everything physically you'd want him to do, technique-wise. Good. You've been handed a chunk of marble. Go carve yourself out a left tackle. Because that's what you're going to have to do here. In your opinion, what is his floor coming into training camp, given that he's so raw technically? You know, I I think he has two things going for him that are going to be critical to his development and going to obviously help his development. One is the mentality that he brings to the field. He's one of those finishers. And look, he's training with a guy, Duke Manningweather, who literally pulled over, pulled over the Escalade to shoot a video to drop on the timeline when there was an argument about how finishing doesn't matter as an offensive tackle. You know, Duke was literally like, nope, I'm going to pull it over now, shoot the video, finishing matters, period. It's non-negotiable. And I love Duke, but I mean, come on, that's kind of hilarious that he would do that (laughs) but he's got duke he's got that mentality where he wants to end you on every single play and he he, that will certainly help him the size will certainly help him and the athleticism will certainly help him and finally look look at the offense that he's getting dropped into we were just talking about it with respect to the quarterback position a minute ago they're not going to be asking him to protect seven step deep drops into the pocket a ton it's going to be a lot of quick game stuff a lot of one gun drops a lot of three gun drops so it's literally like the ball is going to be coming out so quickly. You're not going to be able to just get around this guy, let alone get to the quarterback. And so I think he's got a lot going for him to really help him ease into the NFL. Well, and this is why I don't trust it. This is Adam Gates' fifth season as an NFL head coach. And despite this moniker that he somehow, I think that that's the only, Chris, quarterback guru is the thing that you heard, right? Oh, quarterback yes, whisperer. Come on. That's what you heard tied to Adam Gase when he got the head coaching job in Miami. In five seasons, here's how he's stacked up. No higher than 25th in total yards. 16 to 19, his offensive lines have, 2016 to 2019, his offensive lines have finished 21st, 15th, 8th, and 5th in quarterback hits allowed. Which sort of illustrates that the longer this guy hangs around, the, the more of a physical toll it takes on your quarterback. 
And if you subtract the Jay Ajayi season, which ever Jay Ajayi set the world on fire in 2016. Outside of that, they finished 31st, 30th, and 31st in rushing touchdowns. He's had offenses featuring Frank Gore, Kenyon Drake, and Le'Veon Bell that have failed to have a single rusher post more than 790 yards. Chris, does this sound like a guy who understands how an offensive line needs to operate? No. No. Yet he's been the guy kind of pegged with, hey, get talent, get talent. Well, now what you're doing is they gave him talent. He picked, in Miami, he picked, quote-unquote, his guys. He fired guys from the offensive line and brought in new players that he thought were going to help the culture of the team. And they blew up in his face. And then you take into account the free agents the Jets signed as veteran options on the offensive line. It's dubious at best. you got uh, George Fant, who, not a highly touted tackle option, which is why Seattle let him walk. You've got offensive, you got a center in Connor McGovern, not a terrible option, but I, I don't think he has a high floor of production established. And then you've got uh, the garden, Van Rotten. That guy wasn't even in the league. He wasn't even in the league throughout part of his career. This coach has a track record of failing to coach up or help an offensive line gel. Because, to your point, he believes so much in his horizontal passing game. And yet, it's been the thing that has sank every single one of his offenses. Can you argue me on that? No, I can't. I mean, Gase has this reputation of being the quarterback guru, the quarterback whisperer. And it's largely built upon the success he had while in Denver with Peyton Manning. And I would pose it that any one of us sitting here tonight recording this show would have had the same level of success if we were the offensive coordinator for the Denver Broncos with Peyton Manning as our quarterback, that Adam Gase did. Because it's Peyton freaking Manning. Like, you don't need to coach that guy up. And since then, like you said, his offenses haven't exactly been great. I mean, the next year, he goes to Chicago. He's John Fox's offensive coordinator. And that offense is 18th in the total offense. And, like, what were he in Miami? Like, yeah, they get to the playoffs one year. But it's not like their offense was that good. They just haven't been good. He's largely right in the fact that he rode Peyton Manning's coattails to this title of quarterback guru, and Peyton Manning recommended him for a job as a result. And ever since then, he's been delivered off one season and one heck of a recommendation. And I genuinely believe that that, more than anything, has kind of deluded him into believing he can continue ignoring the offensive line. Now, when you look at this was Douglas's first draft as GM of the Jets, I don't know what kind of snake oil that uh, Gase sold him. But ultimately, when you look at Gase, he's a guy with a track record of failing to coach up or help any kind of gelling of an offensive line over the course of his career. The numbers speak to that. So you'd think that as a GM, you'd say, okay, listen, I'm just some hack over here with whiskey in one hand and beer in another, and I can find these numbers. If you're a professional GM... You'd think you'd be able to go back and find that out about your head coach and then say, listen, Jack, I can't trust you with projects. I can't trust you with players who need development. What you need is a high floor. And instead, what you gave him was Mekhi Becton. Do you, in your heart of, because I think that this is where this whole draft hinges. Does Mekhi Becton, is, is his floor high enough to save this offensive line this season 
Because if not, I, I don't know. I think that this, I think that this draft, I look at it as a big failure on their part to address right. what they needed. I'm, I mean, I think his floor is high enough to be a good enough left tackle in this league to sort of save Adam Gase from himself. But I think your point about the fact that they were probably safer tackles to take at this point in the draft, maybe Tristan Wirfs, for example, who went a couple of picks later to Tampa Bay, then Makai Becton. Um, so maybe in that sense, taking the project over the more sure thing, a guy coming from an Iowa system where it's a lot more pro-friendly, pro-ready, would have made some sense. But I do think, even though that made sense, and maybe that was a bit of a safer move, the floor is reasonably high enough that this Becton pick can work out. It better for Gase's sake. Because I, I, I'm most – if Joe Benigo and uh, – Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts – where are they down there in New York? WFAN in New York City. They're hilarious. They're our go-to. Whenever we want to really just roll around like a dog in the yard when you find something that smells bad, we always dredge up their takes on the Jets whenever we're feeling particularly salty. <laughs> we want to celebrate somebody else's suffering. They're the ones we go to, and they hate that guy. Yeah. So moving on, the Miami Dolphins. Now, this is a team that had the most picks in the entire draft. And they had enough bites at the apple. My favorite pick, obviously, to attack of Iola. Honorable mention, though, and Chris, the reason you're going to reach into that fridge and you're going to grab yourself a nice cold Seagram's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> pick number 185, long snapper Blake Ferguson, brother of Bill's long snapper Reed Ferguson. And the most confusing pick to me was number 18, offensive tackle Austin Jackson. So the thing I want to ask you about to start this conversation off about Miami, to think that the tank for Tua crowd, who were pissed off that the team, they were not only bad enough, people wanted them to be the worst team. They, they decried victories. They, they were worried that they were going to, miss out on fantastic quarterback talent because they wanted Tua. Not only got to end their season by beating Tom Brady in Foxborough, but landed their quarterback anyway without having to trade up. Does that in and of itself qualify as a win? I think so. And I, I think they deserve a ton of credit for fooling everybody, myself included. Because dating back to January in the Senior Bowl through Indianapolis and the Combine, and then in the days leading up to the draft, all I was told was they're worried about Tua's hip. They really like Justin Herbert. Ownership liked Justin Herbert dating back to last season. You know, then you had Mike Lombardi talking about how Tua has been failed by some teams. There are some previous wrist injuries with Tua. He's really fallen. And then in the final hours leading up to the draft, they wanted to go tackle, maybe at five, maybe trade up with five and 18 to get a tackle in the top three. Everything said they were not taking Tua Tungle and they sat there at five and they took their quarterback, the guy they wanted all along. I mean, so if that's not an incredible smokescreen to end all smokescreens, I don't know what is because they had absolutely everybody fooled. Let me ask you this. Now, being an Alabama fan, I got to watch Tua Tagovailoa come in in the national title game. Complete unknown. You know, you saw him in the spring game and you didn't see him again all season. Jalen Hurts was the man. And you watch this kid come out and make – he dug you out of a hole and won you a national title. And then the following year, some injuries creep up, and you lose the national title. 
And then the next year, some more injuries crop up. You don't even make the playoff. What's your take on Tua and how his skill set translates to the NFL? I think his skill set is an absolute ideal fit for the modern offense that they're going to be running in Miami. I mean, and if you want some confirmation of that, look at the Steve Sarkeesian clinic presentation he gave just a couple of months ago on Alabama's RPO passing game. And he pulls out all these clips of Tua running all these RPOs and yada, yada, yada. And then what does he do? He goes back to his time when he was with Atlanta. And he's like, oh, by the way, here's Matt Ryan running that same play. And he's throwing to Julio Jones. Oh, here's Matt Ryan running that same play. He's throwing to Calvin Ridley now. Like this is He's been running basically a modern type spread West Coast system at Alabama. And now Chan Gailey, the guy that first brought the spread to the National Football League, is his offensive coordinator. Chan like, Gailey are, is older than dirt. He is. But <laughs> look, it's they're going to be dropping him into an offensive system where it's going to be a lot of quick reads and throws, a lot of getting the ball out, try to protect him as they rebuild this offensive line. This is an offensive line that let Ryan Fitzpatrick get beat up last year, and they tried to do it at 18 to help them. I know we're going to talk about that today. But I think he fits with what they want to do. And so – I, I, I think, look, it, it's hard not to look at this as a great pick for them. Now, obviously, a lot of it hinges on the hip, but since everybody was fooled by what they were going to do with five at that spot anyway, something tells me the hip's probably fine, and we've just all been sold this bad bill of goods going into the draft. Well, here's the thing. It's not the hip injury for me. I mean, that gets all the press when it comes to his injury history. But to both me and our friend Kyle Trimble of bangedupbills.com, I actually tasked him with this shortly after the first one happened. And now I'm interested to see how it plays out, considering he has multiple tightrope surgeries. Now, this is a relatively new procedure. There isn't a whole lot known about what the long-term prognosis and risk of re-injury might be. But it's essentially where you have a high ankle sprain. It used to be, like, what would you say, a three- to five-week injury? Sometimes longer. Okay. Like, it'd be that sort of like injury like turf toe that would be like, you don't exactly know what it is. It's like this nebulous term, but guys are out for two months as a result of it. So like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So what they would do is they would take a wire and they would literally tether your muscles together so that you had no choice but to heal. That's it. You're going yeah. to heal because you can't move that muscle. It's wired together. He's now had this tightrope surgery done on both ankles. <laughs> on both ankles. Yeah. You combine that with his wrist injuries and hip injuries. <sighs> I mean, I mean, there is a concern to your point, Drew, about his play style. I mean, this is something that's so new. We don't even know what the what might happen right. at the NFL level. Tua, one of the things that made him an impressive college player was his ability to create, his ability to escape, his ability to extend plays and keep plays alive and make some impressive things happen outside the pocket. There's another quarterback, obviously coming from a different level out of college, but he's had that ability. He had that ability coming out of college. He's had that ability during his time in the league so far, but he's also dealt with some injury history. And he's also been sidelined for some very important games as a result of his willingness, the sort of duality of his sound play where he's willing to put his body on the line, but sometimes exposes him to hits, lower body injuries. And that's Carson Wentz. And so you, the fear here is that 
the injury history with Tua isn't so much like you were saying. It's, it isn't so much the hip. It's the play style is going to expose him to hits. It's going to expose him to wear and tear on that body. It's going to expose him to more lower body injuries. You couple the, the tightrope procedure that he's had, and you don't know about the feasibility of that long term. It might be a situation where, like Carson Wentz, he's a guy you can't rely on to play a full 16-game slate. Now, that's worst-case scenario, but it is something to consider with his play style and how we've seen other quarterbacks with that kind of played style and demeanor suffer injuries as a result. Trust me, I'm so sick and tired of fucking the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins drafting all of the Alabama players that I love. I love these guys. I watch them play. I root them on week after week after week. And then they go on to play for the teams that I hate. And it drives me absolutely insane. And this is going to, this might go up there if he's successful with one of the biggest. This might be up there. This might be the crown jewel of me being angry about the AFC East constantly picking Alabama players. And then whenever the Bills do it, it just blows up in our face. Yeah, I mean, look, Alabama players tend to be at risk anyway. I mean, we've seen some; we've seen them go both ways. I mean, Sometimes they eat their guys. way out of the NFL, like Eddie Lacy. Yeah, I mean, so who knows? We get out from under saving, you know, things change. Now, one of the things I want to pick your brain about: this is an interesting one for Bills fans. The Jackson pick that surprised me. I mean, I mean, you're talking about a guy who gets beat for most of the Holiday Bowl by our second round draft pick, AJ Epinesa. Mostly because the guy's hand fighting simply isn't on par. And his balance really isn't up to snuff. What do you think of how this guy, where not only where he was drafted, but how he translates as a future left tackle? You know, I think like many people, I was sort of confused. Not that they went offensive tackle at 18. I thought this would have been a Josh Jones pick, although he certainly <laughs> fell in the draft. You know, you sort of wonder about that. There are a lot of people who thought... It wasn't really a big forward offensive tackle. It was a big five, and you know Josh Jones was in that mix. I I think a lot of people looked at Jackson this past season and thought, you know, he didn't take the step forward. We were expecting to see more for him. He just didn't do it. I wonder if, in a sense, what he did that off season, the, the bone marrow situation with his sister, who was obviously going through a health situation. You know, he said, "Look, you know that." put me kind of behind the eight ball. You know, I, I wasn't really able to train in the off season. I wasn't really able to like give it my all at the start of the year. It really took a while for me to sort of get back into things. I wonder if that really sort of had an impact. And when people looked back at the 2018 film, they saw a guy that only gave up two sacks, you know, only gave up three quarterback hits, you know, technically the proficiency is there, you know, the technical aspects in stark contrast to what we were talking about earlier with Makai Becton, the technical aspects of the game are there. And he's not even 21. And so when you've got the foundation of a technical left tackle in the offensive in the NFL to build from, and a young guy as well, a guy that moves well with good footwork, you're probably happy to swing on that even if he gave up four sacks last year. Even if it looked at times like in that game against A.G. Epinesen where he was just getting beaten left and right. People probably thought, this guy can't do it. He's got to get stronger with his hands, but that's a, a flyer you're willing to take when, like you said at the outset, they had so many draft picks. They have so many picks in this class. They have so much cap space to work with. They can take a flyer on a guy with technical proficiency because if it doesn't work, they'll buy a left tackle next offseason. Well, I guess that's the thing. You, there's so many picks here, you can't really analyze every single one of them. 
<laughs> so when you take a look at the collective, their massive hall of prospects, I mean, what was it Clayton Garrett of Cold Front Report on our draft night show called the defensive back they drafted with their first round pick Alphabet Soup? Because on the fly, you're never well, going to pronounce that name. <laughs> you're never going to pronounce that name correctly. Do you think it was described as a reach at the time? Do you agree with it or do you believe that they've just – do you think he is what they think they needed to have three lockdown corners? I, I love this pick. He was one of my favorite corners. Okay. Um, back before even the draft, um, I was watching him. I, I sometimes write for a Minnesota Golden Gophers website. And so prior to their bowl game against Auburn, um, I, I was studying their defense and I really love this kid. I, I think – remember Brian Flores off that Belichick tree who I think is kind of doing – the things that, you know, you want a good coach to do and not trying to, like, believe in himself too much like we're seeing from Matt Patricia and Bill O'Brien also off the Belichick tree. Flores has, like, learned the positive lessons of from working under Belichick and not some of the negative ones. Belichick firmly believes in the ability to play matchups with your defensive backs. Don't let them, as an offense, like, dictate your matchups. Like, have matchups that you want to play. Some weeks, if you want to take Stephon Gilmore and put him on a tight end, that's your best matchup, fine, do it. Like, like move your guys around. Now with Xavier Howard, Byron Jones, and now Noah Alphabet Soup, if that's what we're going to call them, <laughs> they've got three guys they can do that with. So some week, maybe you're really worried about the slot guy. You take your best athlete. Maybe it's Noah, who is an incredible athlete, and you put him on him. Maybe some weeks you're worried about the big guy on the outside. Now you've got two long corners and Howard and Jones. You can move those guys around. And so it gives him that flexibility in the defensive side of, in the defensive secondary to play some matchups to his advantage. And I think the Noah pick there at 30 overall gives them the flexibility to do that. He's a tremendous athlete. They can slide him into the slot and just play him there if they want to. It gives him a ton of options. I'm a huge fan of that pick. Do you think overall – the Miami Dolphins having the most draft capital in the entire draft. Do you think that they did well coming out of this? I think so. I, I think overall this was a good draft. Um, I wouldn't say it was like an A plus kind of thing. I think it's more like B plus. Um, you know, obviously to his health, if he ends up being a ten year starter for them, that bumps it up. You know, if they can get out of Austin Jackson, what they're hoping to get when they drafted at eighteen, that bumps it up. Um, but I think they did overall a pretty good job. I mean, even as you get later into the draft, I mean, Raekwon Davis has a ton of potential. I wish he could put it together. But I think that yeah, you and me the both. run stopping ability, yeah, I bet. I mean, the run stopping ability is there. He's got a pretty good array of pass rushing moves. He just never really came together as a pass rusher. But I think with some of the other talent they'll have around him, it might. He might get some more one-on-one opportunities. Watching him in college is one of the most frustrated things because some days, some days he would be great. Yeah. And then some days he would go up against mediocre offensive lines and you wouldn't hear his name all day. I mean, look, Weaver, the Boise State edge, there was a time, I'm old enough to remember, and it wasn't in 2019, it was this year, where he was looked at as a first-round pick. <laughs> and so they got him in the fifth round. I mean, they had so many darts to throw, the Probably miss on a lot of them, but even if half of them hit, that's a pretty darn good draft. That's still a good draft class. Yeah. So that leaves <laughs> the New England Patriots. I can't wait to get into this. My favorite pick of the New England Patriots draft was kicker Justin Rohrwasser out of Marshall. And the most confusing pick to me was Kyle Duggar out of Lenroe Wine. 
Rhine. Jesus. Lenore Rhine. Lenore Rhine. Lenore Rhine. I like the fact that you are here enunciating. You're not even all the way through your Seagrams. No. You started 10 minutes ago. Because it's delicious. Savor it. Yeah. No one said that. Back in the day, uh, what's his face? I just showed you the commercial. He saved Nakatomi Plaza. Uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis did the commercials for the Seagrams back in the 80s. He didn't like Seagrams. This is wet and dry. Oh, my God. I hate you. (laughs) I hate you. Uh, So when we get to the Patriots, I'll say this. I'll, I'll preface this. The 20... 2020 NFL offensive season, Chris, it's been one of loss and transition for the Patriots. So why should the draft be any different? First of all, the Patriots not drafting a quarterback. That seems about right. Considering where they were on the board and what the total cost would have been to get one of the top talents, do you at least agree with that, Mark, that it would have been too rich for what you guys wanted to try to accomplish? Yeah, I mean... This was the quintessential Bill Belichick draft to the point where I, I, I called the two picks we're going to talk about at the outset before they happened. Because two weeks before the draft, I tweeted out a gif from Rick and Morty of Rick and Morty giving the double birds to everybody. And I said, <laughs> I Belichick, love that show. Belichick won the Patriots draft a random safety at 23. <laughs> I, I knew that it was going to come. And then when they traded out to 37, I said before night two kicked off, I'm like, okay, it's going to happen at 37. And what happened? He drafted a random safety from Division II Lenore Rod right at 37. And then before the pick at 159, I tweeted out a picture of Belichick's dog at the kitchen table in Nantucket with I'm just preparing myself to hear the words at 159, the Patriots select Rodrigo Blankenship kicker from Georgia. And they went with the Marshall kicker. Like – it was a quintessential Belichick draft. Like most of us who have observed Bill Belichick through the years pretty much knew exactly how this was going to play out. And it played out almost to form. The fact that they didn't draft a kicker. Guys, I told you when I was on last, Jared Stidham's the plan. Like the, the plan is Jared Stidham. And so the fact that they didn't draft a quarterback, like I don't see why people are shocked by this. This is going to be their guy for next year. And if he he's good, great. If he's not, all right, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, come on down. Uh, yeah, right before we had you on, uh, we were just sitting here waiting for you uh, to come on Skype. And I looked, because the schedule's coming out Thursday, the Buffalo Bills had put something on Facebook of our opponents. And, like, we wait for when these games are. I'm looking at our home opponents. New England's quarterback is the least accomplished of any yeah. quarterback that's coming here. Look, you... It is a transition year for the New England Patriots. Like, Bill Belichick's not tanking. I think there was a, a columnist, Dave Brown, who said Belichick would sooner acquire an actual tank and take the first overall pick next year by force than he would actually <laughs> let him lose games. And I think that's, that's right. He's well, because the man hates to lose. We've seen it with our own two eyes. When you beat him, when you Chris win against Bill said, Belichick, all of these young – First-time head coaches or these, I don't even want to say young coaches, but coaches who, like, hey, we finally got over the hill, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to meet Bill Belichick at the 50-yard line, and we're going to shake hands as equals. And he's going to recognize me as his equal. And instead, he just goes to the locker room. He's like, ah, fuck this guy. (laughs) Now, I will not not acknowledge that I just got beat. I'm mad about it, and if I have to play you again in the playoffs, 
you'll regret this moment. Right. No, he certainly hates to lose. But at the same time, look at their schedule. Like, <laughs> look at their schedule. They've got a first-place schedule, so they get Baltimore, Houston, and Kansas City with the Baltimore and – or it's the Houston and Kansas City games on the road. They've got the AFC – like, all the AFC East teams, you get the NFC West this year. So you're looking at trips to Seattle – trips to Los Angeles to play the Rams. They've got another trip to L.A. to play the Chargers. They've got a trip to Vegas to play the Raiders. I mean, that's a tough road schedule as well because you're talking maybe two or three or four West Coast swings. Then look at the AFC East. Like, this is a team. I I said this somewhere else. Stidham could end up being the guy and have a pretty good season for them as a first-year starting quarterback. Belichick could coach the season of his life. And with this schedule, they could still go 8-8, even in the rosiest of situations. So this is a transition year. Now, the the thing that's working for them is this. They'll find out if Stidham's the guy this year. If he is, you've got a cost-controlled quarterback that is going to be costing you $3.15 million over the next two years. He's he's got a four-year $3.15 million deal. And next offseason, they're projected to have about $100 million in cap space. So if Stidham's the guy, great. You can go spend a ton of money. If he's not the guy, you can go buy a quarterback or you'll be picking in the middle of the first round. Maybe you trade up and you go get Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. Like This is a transition year for them. I don't think they're tanking, but with their schedule, with the fact they're breaking in a new quarterback, they might go 8-8. Eight eight. Here's some of the things that surprised me, though. Even thinking about them planning for the future and just trying to see what they have. They're focused on defense. I mean, this was a wide receiver-heavy draft class, and their current core is either dramatically aged. I mean, you're talking about Sanu and Edelman. Those guys are closer to retiring than they are, I don't know, having 1,000-yard seasons. Uh, Young and unproven, like Myers or Nikhil Harry, or they're just not effective, like Lee or Slater. What was the fan reaction in New England to the Patriots passing on what... Any kind of premier offensive talents in a draft that seemed to be stocked with them? You know, I, I think, interesting enough, if you had told Patriots fans at the start of day two that you were coming out of the night of the second round of nights of the second night of the draft with Kyle Duggar, Josh Uche, Anthony Jennings, Dalton Keene, and Devin CSD, you just didn't tell them the order. You said these are the guys we're getting. Most of them would have been pretty excited with that because there was excitement about the double dip at tight end. There's excitement about the two linebackers to replace linebackers they lost. And there's a, a, a realization and sort of an acceptance of the fact that if Stidham is going to be the guy this year, it's not going to be the Patriots teams we've seen in the past that will go three and four wide and throw it 50 times a game. They're going to be a 12-21 personnel team that's going to run it the bulk of the time, that's going to ask Stidham to maybe throw it 20 times a game. It's going to be a team that's going to mirror the start of the run. It's going to be a team like we saw in 2001, 2002 that asked Brady to throw it 20, 25 times a game and relied on their defense. They want to win 17, 14 rock fights, and they think they can do that with Jared Stidham next year as he learns to play quarterback. The question is this, though. You could do that in 2001. You could do that back then. Is this a rock fight league right now? <laughs> like, I don't think it is. But if there's any guy that's going to make it work, it's Bill Belichick. Now, what I love is that I'm pointing to my host right now and I'm telling him to check the notes that I sent him because I've already I've already given him all the, the bullet points. You look at, you want to talk about rock fight. The last few years, they've been trying trending that way. 
They finished 11th, 3rd, and 9th in rushing attempts from 2017, 18, and 19, respectively. In 17 and 18, they were top 10 for yardage on the ground. But in 19, the wheels fell off without any kind of competent blocking in front of them and with no talent at the tight end group. That's something I want to talk about. Rather than wide receivers, we saw them draft a pair of tight ends. Do you think that that sends more about... It says more about Bilicek's love for multiple tight end sets? Or do you think it says more about the talents of the players that suited up for the t- suited up for the Patriots to tight end in 2019? I mean, look at the stats. They're garbage. Starting tight ends only contributed 19 first downs all season. That's less than 10% for an entire position group. One that we know the Patriots have loved to use as a mismatch. No tight end on the Patriots team had more than 100 yards after the catch. And the two they just drafted are a combo of a blocking and receiving threat. Do you think this is Billy trying to revive the Gronk and Aaron Hernandez years? I think that's exactly what it is. I think they're looking at Devin Asiasi, who could be potentially, you know, the all-purpose, like, in-line type end, like, you know, the Gronk of the situation. And Dalton Keene as potentially the Aaron Hernandez of the situation, might as well the Aaron Hernandez things that we now know him for. And so they're looking at those two guys as, okay, we can sort of recreate that situation we had back in 12, 13, where you could go out with those two tight ends on the field, two wide receivers and a running back, and force the defense to decide what they're going to do. If they stay big because they're thinking you're going to run it, you spread them out and you throw it. If they get small thinking you're going to throw it, you condense things and you run it down their throat. Like they're going to try to win mismatches like they did back then. I also think that this was a recognition of the fact that their tight end group, like you said, was so bad last year. Oh, it was I garbage. Mean, Matt Lacoste? It, it, it was Matt Lacoste? It was a vacuum of suck. Like, <laughs> and many of us Patriots fans were clamoring for them to double dip at the tight end position last year. Because we saw the suck on the horizon, and they didn't do it. They loaded up for one more run, you know, with Mohamed Sanu, that trade, and Antonio Brown, and they were going to throw the ball in Seattle. Antonio Brown ended up without his mind. Sanu had the high ankle sprain, and it just fell to pieces. And and so they're saying, okay, well, now we're going to rebuild it with what we were doing back when we first started. We're going to revive the run game, the tight ends, mismatches, and try to win some 17-14 rock fights. Like, that's the plan. Will it work? Who knows? So then the one thing I have to talk to you about, the Duggar pick, because it yeah. still sticks in my craw. It's unbillicheckian to me. Now, you said it seems to fit, and here's where I disagree. You're talking about a prospect that's raw in almost every kind of nuanced aspect of the game, despite his – you're talking about elite athleticism. Kyle Krabs from the Draft Network called him the best athlete in the draft, which yeah. could be true. If, if you look at what you see from him on tape, his coverage and ball skills are both going to require work just to get him to an NFL level. It, coming from Chris, I can't Lenore Ryan. Yeah, that, that's right. Because I, I'm not sophisticated enough to be able to pronounce that. Or go to college. <laughs> he's, he's obviously not going to be required to start, start right away, which is, I guess, maybe the blessing in all of this. Because your secondary is still one of the best in the NFL. 
This is essentially a learning year, not a contributing one. Which is why I was kind of lukewarm when Bills fans were talking about taking him over a safety like Jeremy Chin. I was like, if you're going to draft a safety, draft one who understands how to play the game at a high level. What I guess I, I look at is I just see that the Patriots cut Obi Melifonwu, who was drafted by the Raiders, who was this athletic freak out of kind of a lower D1 college. I think it was Connecticut. And he was supposed to be this super athletic but raw, but you could teach him. And the Patriots picked him up off the street for nothing and yet couldn't make him serviceable. And Duggar, to me, almost smells like the same type of player. Am I wrong in assuming that? I I think there's a difference with the Duggar pick. I think he is obviously a bit of a project for a long-term safety role especially in a Bill Belichick defense, which is complex in nature. It's going to ask a lot of safeties. So there's going to be a learning curve for him. But that doesn't preclude him, I think, from contributing right away. I mentioned earlier their schedule. They've got Baltimore on the schedule again. When you saw this Patriots defense, as good as it was last year, struggle to stop Baltimore, one of the things that they lacked at the second level was a guy that could chase down players from behind, including Lamar Jackson. So it would not surprise me at all if when they picked Kyle Duggar, they said for the most part, he's on the shelf till 2021. We've got to teach him the game. We've got to teach him the NFL. We've got to teach him our system. But when we play Baltimore, he's going to be lining up in the box for us. He's going to be lining up at linebacker for us. And we're going to take that elite 4-4-9-40, that broad jump of 11 feet, that 42-inch vertical, and put it to use and say you've got one job this week, and that's to find number eight. Wherever he goes, you go. Like that scene from Hoosiers, I want to know what kind of what flavor of gum he's chewing by the time this game is over. Like he's going to be cast with slowing down Lamar Jackson. Can he do it? I don't know. But this was perhaps the first time I've ever thought Belichick was self-aware in a sense. Because in so many times, so many draft classes, he's been, look, this is the way I'm going to do it. And when I had that tweet that he was going to draft a random safety, the guy I sort of had in mind was like the three-year starter, team captain, who's like, you know, a random school nobody had ever heard of that ran maybe a 4-8-40, was kind of slowing down athletic, and you thought maybe at best he's a special teams guy. He took a swing on an athlete. He took a swing on a guy that's an explosive football player. And that's a move that's un-Belichickian in a sense, was to yes. take the swing on a guy. Take a swing on a guy who's raw. And that's why it, it didn't seem normal to me. that This is a guy who doesn't have a proven floor of production but he's an elite athlete and maybe yeah. you can teach him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Drew, that's, that's kind of a self-awareness from Belichick that we haven't seen before. And, you know, at the senior bowl, look, at times Duggar looked like he belonged at times he did it. Um, but he is a project, but sometimes when you're going to place a bet on a guy, placing a bet on a guy with this level of athleticism, again, doing those numbers, I just mentioned at six feet, 217 pounds, that's elite as far as safeties go. I mean, that's elite at almost any position. And so to give Belichick somebody with that skill set, I think I'm kind of excited about it. Well, here's what you won't be excited about. We can't have you on this show without throwing a little Patriot shade. Can't have it happen. What's going on with the kicker? I mean, I'm looking at a tweet right now from Adam Schefter. I'm going to read you the the progression of this. It starts from Adam Schefter. Patriots rookie Justin Rossbauer says he's removing controversial tattoo. 
And PFT commenter from Barstool Sports says, all class from the Pats. The Bills could learn a lot about adjusting when their kicker is too far right. And Del Reed says, I'm not even mad. That's a great pun. Yeah, I mean, I knew this was going to be an issue immediately when <laughs> the pick was made and Justice Muscata tweeted out, I demand discourse and had images of the tat and the three percenters group that it was associated with. I mean, the, the most unbelichick thing of all time is to walk into a situation where your kicker becomes the story for reasons other than making a game-winning kick. You know, you as a football organization, you never want – your kicker to be sort of the cause of like off the field angst. And that's what we had right away. I mean, he goes on for the zoom call and immediately one of the first questions after the draft is about the tattoo. And look, what do you want to say about the tattoo? What do you don't want to say about the tattoo? Whatever, put that aside. The fact that you have an on the field, off the field issue story about your rookie fifth round kicker. That's a bit of a head scratch you're seeing from Belichick. And I know, look, they probably didn't get a chance to meet with the guy. Did anybody do a Google search? Like just a quick Google image search for this kid. <laughs> you see the tattoos. Like it makes you wonder, like for an organization that prides itself on doing all the little things and situational awareness and being ready for anything, nobody just did a Google search of the kid. Like you could have said, okay, well, he's a great kicker, but we don't want this headache because we know it's going to be an issue. We'll draft Rodrigo Blankenship at 159 like that idiot Schofield said we were going to do. Well, and I guess if you're talking about who ranks where, I guess the other question I could ask is it comes to the kicker. We drafted our guy around later. And yet Bass was, if, if for any outlet that cared to rank kickers, it seems like Bass was the more highly touted prospect of the two. In fact, Rarwasser wasn't even in the top three or four. For most people who bothered to rank kickers, why is this the pick of the Patriots? I don't know. And it's not like you have great numbers to go from I think he was like you know 85% on field goals or something like that he did have one game winner his career long of 53 was a game winner which I mean okay I guess that's something he had like 60 or 70 I mean I think 63 of his 68 kickoffs this year were touchbacks so I guess okay that's good but yeah I mean I've got it in my hand I, I reached out to grab it um, Arif Hassan from the Athletic Minnesota does the consensus draft board each year where he takes everybody's big boards, puts it together, and spits out what he calls the consensus draft board. And in the top 300 players checking in at 288 is Tyler Bass. Like a lot of people thought if any kicker was going to get drafted first, it was going to be the kid um, Tyler Bass from Georgia Southern who has an absolute cannon of a leg. When you see him taking one step and hitting 60 yarders, like, come on. <laughs> and, and so this – I get the position at 159. This, the kid better make some kicks. Like, that's all I'm going to say about it. Because, you know, if you're an off the field headache for Bill Belichick and you can't produce, you do your job, you're going to be gone. Like, like Jonas so, Gray. Yeah. So, <laughs> if he can't make kicks, he's going to be gone faster than, I don't know, use your favorite. You know, well, that's the thing is the Bills drafted multiple kickers before this, and we cut all of them. The last question I have for you before we move on, how did you as a Patriots fan feel seeing Bill Belichick's war room on draft night? You, I thought it was you, perfect. You consider yourself a pretty tech-savvy guy. You have yourself a pretty sweet layout. That room that he was drafting from, that's depressing. 
Last week we pointed it out. If anyone would have had a home that looked like it should belong to a supervillain or be the place that a guy goes to, I don't know, plan the takeover of a small country, I'd assume, I'd assume yeah. it would belong in the home of Bill Belichick and not Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah, the Ukraine is weak. <laughs> can we, can we talk about the next Bond is Cliff Kingsbury <laughs> and the next Bond villain? Exactly. Is that's what I was saying. I'm like, that's a Bond it's, villain home. It's perfect. Like, Nora Princiati from Boston Globe tweeted out that after the Cliff Kingsbury image was like, this is, this is a Bond scene. Like, this is. And then when you've got Jerry Jones on the yacht, like, he's a little sheaf, okay? I just, I expected a bloody tear to start twinkling out of his eye as he lost the hand of poker. I mean, it was, I want Cliff as the next 007, and I want Jerry Jones as the next Bond villain. That's all I want. I can oh. die happy. Now, Belichick at the kitchen table on his Nantucket house, I mean, the only good thing about that entire setup was the dog, okay? And Nike... <laughs> was the star of the draft as far as the Patriots are concerned in my mind because he sat there like a good boy. He just stared at the screen. When they drafted, you know, he made for such great content because when they drafted the the linebacker, Cassius Cash Marsh or whatever that guy's name is, not going to matter. It's not going to be here for long anyway. I was like, Nike, did you hit the wrong button? Did you draft the wrong Wyoming linebacker? I had no <laughs> idea who that guy was. Absolutely no idea who that guy was. And – Apparently he ran a four or five at their pro day. Like I, okay, sure. But Nike was the best part of that setup for me. Uh, I'll tell you what, my, watching that happen, I was like, here's a guy wearing too tight of clothes in a multi-million dollar mansion. And here is the genius, the evil genius of football, walking around in a hoodie and jeans, throwing a football to himself in a room with a table that looks like you can play backgammon on it. He li- that room looks like the place that you go to drink some Earl Grey and read Garrison Keeler, not conduct an NFL draft. No. And and that's the dichotomy that exists between coaches and GMs. <laughs> yeah, he just Belichick just doesn't care, man. He just does not care. Uh, it almost makes him seem like a person, and I'm almost. not willing to see him that way. Almost. So before we let you go, we got to talk about entering the 2020 season and handicapping the AFC East. Post-draft. Which team do you think did the most between undrafted free agency and the draft to improve their fortunes in 2019? I mean, look, I, I think... If you don't Buffalo, say Miami, I'll scream. No, I think... I, look, I think Miami and Buffalo both did very good. I think Miami and Buffalo both did very good this Miami, Miami, Miami had so much money... And they so had much money to draft spend, capital. draft capital to spend, and they did all of that. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. I mean, look, they did a great job. But I, I think, look, Buffalo, for what you guys did, the Steph- let's not forget the Stephon Diggs trade is going to be huge. I mean, that's going to be a big part of your offense. Getting Zach Moss, I know people might have wanted a different running back. I think Zach Moss is a fantastic running back. I think he's an ideal fit for what you guys want from a running back. He's a perfect complement to Singletary next year. And so I, I think Buffalo had a good offseason. You could say Miami had a better offseason, but they got a long way to go before we could say, you know, they're going to be contenders. I think if you're looking at the state of the AFC East right now, I think the two best teams, Buffalo and New England, and New England's basically there because of the defense and what they expect to get from Bill Belichick. Well, and that's, a, and that's my next question. 
who do you think in the AFC East is going to have the best defense? I mean, the Patriots had a lot of turnover, but Bill Belichick has surprised everybody before it. The secondary is still intact. They're returning the bulk of its starters, including all-pro cornerback Stephon Gilmore. The secondary is the backbone of that defense. They led with takeaways. The secondary is great. If they can get some production from Uche and Jennings, the linebackers, the defense will still be very good. You know, but this is a Bills defense that was great last year. Well, yeah, and yeah. since 2017, the Bills defense has been what top five? Yeah, top and, ten and every year. The fact that in my one but, of, but also you got to talk about Miami spending a ton of money in draft capital on that side of the ball. Well, and Byron Jones, Kyle Van Noy, Shaq Lawson, like there are some players on that side of the defense. So when you take that all into account, who do you think is the is going to emerge from this quagmire as the best defense? I mean, I, it's hard to count Bill Belichick and a Bill Belichick defense out. You know, with the starters they have in the secondary, with, you know, the fact that they've loaded up to try to win these rock fights like I'm calling them, like they're going to try to win with their defense. So I would say, look, I would put them one, Buffalo two. And maybe it's a 1A, 1B type of situation. Because I look at this fact. Britain, making sure you had both safeties back, Hoyer and Hyde, was huge. Because... You know, I, I, I was talking with Eric Turner just, I, I don't know, if it was yesterday, today, last week. The days all run together right now. <laughs> but about the Bills' defense and how they can confuse rookies, veterans, confuse veteran quarterbacks, confuse rookie quarterbacks, confuse veteran receivers, rookie receivers, with the way they spin their safeties and the way these, these two safeties, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, can confuse players. Now you're talking about Sam Darnold, still a young quarterback. Jared Stidham is obviously a young quarterback and potentially Tua Tagovailoa. Like they're going to confuse the hell out of those three guys next year. And so for the safeties alone, you know this is a very good defense. Trey White obviously might be the, if not the second best corner. There's an argument that he's one A to he's one B to Gilmore's one A in the AFC East. Ipanessa is going to give you a bit more pass rush up front. This is a very good defense. Now you just said that you put the Patriots and Bills at one A and one B. In terms of their who is the best defense, according to Vegas, the Bills and the Patriots, despite each team's warts heading into next year, are tied at a plus one twenty to win the division. When you look at the rest of it, New York they're plus seven fifty, and Miami is plus nine fifty. That seems awfully low considering the cash Miami threw around in the draft capital they just spent. I mean, and you could almost make a case that last year's Miami team overperformed despite having an under-talented roster, which you could attribute to coaching the same way you did. Chris, didn't everyone say that about Sean McDermott when he showed up in 2017? They said, that Bills team, you just traded away your number one wide receiver and your number two cornerback. You're not going to be competitive. Yeah, uh, I think Brian Flores uh, established a pretty good culture in Miami. Okay. Yep. So with that said, there's a lot here. Do you agree with that slotting? I think so, for the most part. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see Miami start to creep up. Um, you know, if we do get sort of a full training camp and we hear the two is ready to go and things like that, Miami might make a little bit of noise. Um, but I, I do think that they still have a long way to go. You know, there are going to be questions about the quarterback position. I think a lot of the New England 
the fact that they're on the same page, the same plane as the Bills right now, is basically buying on this defense in Belichick. I mean, the Jared Sidham piece of this is going to be a huge question mark. And if it turns out that he is not the guy, I don't see even if they have this great defense that they're trying to build and they still have in the secondary, that they're going to be able to overcome deficiency at the quarterback position. It is a quarterback-driven league right now. And so, you know, if I were putting money on teams right now in the AFC East, I wouldn't be putting my money on New England as much as I'd like to see them be successful. I think this is, like I said, a transition year for them. And I'm not convinced that they're going to be able to overcome all the losses that they've had, the loss of Tom Brady, the schedule, and everything else they have that's in front of them in the year ahead. Do you think that the Jets, here's the team that I haven't heard any buzz on. Are they a wild card or a dark horse in this for the division crown? I mean, they have a solid defense. Even as bad as their cornerbacks were, their defense was still a top seven, uh, top seven defense. They're just wildly inconsistent on offense. And a lot of yeah. it has to do with the offensive line, which they didn't do a ton to... They they made moves, but I don't know how much of those moves actually make them a better franchise. Do you think that the Jets have... Do you think that they've improved enough? And do you think they've done enough to help Darnold, knowing what you know about quarterbacks? And as you said, quarterback-driven league. Have they done enough to make Donald a better quarterback or at least help foster an environment where he can be a better quarterback and improve off his kind of mediocre sophomore season? I mean, look, they threw a ton of the offensive line in free agency too. I mean, George Fett, Connor McGovern, like they, they made some additions there as well. They're okay, they're but they're not world beaters. They're not world beaters. I mean – They've done work, yes. I don't think they've Vin done Rodden wasn't in the NFL. I mean, yeah. He I, was on a couch watching football I on Sundays. I don't think that you could consider them dark horses or wild cards or however you want to phrase it for the division. You know, uh, just, just looking at the additions that they've made, they're good. Some of the pieces are great. The Mims pick where they got them was fantastic. But of the four teams in this division, there's a reason that nobody's making noise about the Jets. It's because we'd have to see it, you know. I just don't see it right now. Ah, so as we close, who do you think is currently built to be the most competitive team in the AFC East at this point? I think sitting here right now, it's Buffalo. Because, look, they at least know what they have in their quarterback. I think the jury's obviously still out on Sam Darnold with reason. Like, there are questions about Sam Darnold. There are questions, obviously, about Tua Tungvaloa, what Miami's going to do with quarterback. There are questions with... Jared Stidham with the Patriots have a quarterback. You know what you have in Josh Allen, and if he can put together the vertical passing element, which is part of the reason you acquired Stephon Diggs, he's going to be the guy that can get you to where you want to be. You know, for that alone, you know, again, quarterback-driven league, you'd have to say that the Bills right now are in the driver's seat. And it doesn't hurt that Josh Allen has had the same OC and head coach his entire time in the league. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for coming onto the show tonight. We always appreciate a fresh set of eyes, especially a non-biased set of eyes. Oh, I'm biased as all get up. <laughs> <laughs> to, talk, to talk about all of this stuff. Because our listeners are used to hearing people who like the Bills come onto our show and talk about the Bills. I like bringing somebody else in whose tastes are a little bit different. A little bit. Yeah. Oh, 
What do you have uh, going on the internet wherever you do your writing and podcasting? And where can we find you on the Twitter? Well, gentlemen, thanks as always. Always a blast. At Mark Schofield on the timeline. Uh, main places I write right now, USA Today's Touch on Wire, Mount Walden's RSP, uh, three different SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and Pat's Pulpit. The QB Factory with Michael Kist. The, the Sco Show podcast over at Pat's Pulpit. But again, the easiest place to find me is on the timeline at Mark Schofield. All right, that was Mark Schofield. Always a great guest, especially during draft time. Glad he could join us to kind of discuss what's gone on, gone on around the division with the draft. Uh, he's on Twitter, at Mark Schofield. I got two quick things to hit you with. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why I was on my iTunes. We're not Apple users, and we don't promote Apple anything. But I did see that somebody left us a five-star review on iTunes that was a Browns fan that listens to our podcast. <laughs> and Guys, then, and then also, we never ask for this, but can you leave us a review or two on iTunes? Apparently, it helps people find you. I don't know. I don't beg for praise. I'm not, I'm not that guy. Either no. you like me or you don't. Considering the two reviews before his were poor reviews. <laughs> but then uh, That sounds about right. This was a couple of weeks ago. We did get a DM from Graham Hughes asking for uh, a link up to the Google Drive where we have some Bills games on. And we had asked him for his email and never heard anything back. So, Graham Hughes, if you want access. Get back, sir. Yes. Get back to us with your email. Anybody else out there? If you want access to the Google Drive where we host old Bills games, we're talking the, what, Chris, early 90s. I'd say mid-90s to early 2000s. There you go. I might have 25 to 30 games. I have. We swap them out every week. Email us at rockpowerreport716 at gmail.com or DM us at rockpowerreport on Twitter. And DM us your goddamn email. Now, typically, folks, this is where we part ways, and we only do shows on a biweekly basis. But, Chris, take a look around. What's happening? There's no bars. Uh, You're going to be a father. There's no hockey. There's no softball. Notice how I just glossed over that. (laughs) You have no dates. You, personally. It's not like you're going out taking women... I could. You couldn't because there's nowhere to take them. Well, you could just, hey, let, I mean, well, you'd be like, you'd have to go, hey, uh, you know, why don't we uh, go for a walk in a park while the sun's out? <laughs> It'll, we'll uh, stay 12. I'll, I'll bring walkie talkies. <laughs> you know, we'll, I'll, st- I'll stay on one side of the park. You stay on the other. As long as I keep you in vision, we'll communicate via walkie talkie. Folks, I'll tell you this. This COVID-19, it's taken it's taken enough things from me. And with that, I make the decision that the podcast stays weekly. For the first summer in our entire existence, weekly podcasts. Good, great, grand, wonderful. You're damn right. Chris, I'm going to yell at everybody on this bus. Here's what I know is that next week, we not only have, we have a review of the schedule to release, which the NFL has said is going to happen on Thursday night. Yeah, we've never done that before. Chris, Seagram's bet. 
Under over is one and a half. How many primetime games does the Bills get? It's 100% over. We're going to get three. You're calling three. Three. So if I said two, you'd still take it? Yes. Ah, my man. Seagram's bet. Because if you look at, the, look at the ratings that we got for that Cowboys game, the playoff game, and that Steelers game, networks are going to be all over us the same way they were all over Cleveland going into the last season. We're going to have a review of the schedule release, but we're also going to be featuring Ryan Lacell of Rock Sports Network. We're going to take an in-depth look at the economic viability of North American sports and why football supersedes all of them and can still happen even without fans in the stadium. Chris, I've done an incredible amount of research about this, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Guys, thank you. Each and every one of you for showing up all off-season long. Stick with us. Guarantee you it's going to be a ride. With that said, we got to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was Mark Schofield. And this has been the Rock Pile Report. We'll see you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.